Thank you all for coming today. My name is Sarah Allender. I'm Executive Director and Senior Fellow in the Global Health Policy Center here at CSIS. Thank you all for joining us in person today, and thank you to all who are joining via webcast. We're very excited to launch our Global Nutrition Policy Primer and discuss how to maximize U.S. nutrition investments today. Global Nutrition Policy is a relatively new addition to our work here at CSIS, and we jointly cover it in two different programs, the Global Health Policy Center and the Global Food Security Project. For us in global health, we see nutrition as a critical, low-cost, highly effective intervention that has far-reaching impact on its own, but also as a critical supplementary input into other global health interventions. For the Global Food Security Project, they have built nutrition in as a critical cross-cutting component of their work to analyze global food security trends and U.S. engagement to reduce hunger, poverty, and malnutrition. The primer that we're here to discuss today has been led by the Global Health Policy Center, but we've had input from the Global Food Security Project into its contents. For us as the Global Health team, we've expanded our work in global nutrition policy over the last few years, uh, really with our Task Force on Women's and Family Health, which launched its final report two years ago. We've also, in the last year, conducted a research trip jointly with Food Security to Uganda and launched a policy brief and uh, had a public event on that uh, brief last October. And it was through that task force on women's and family health that I got introduced to global nutrition. Uh, I actually was quite surprised by how complex a field it is, maybe not as surprising to the experts who are here in the room, uh, but also how cost-effective nutrition is and an intervention, as an intervention and how integral it is to the success of other global health programs. Through our consultations as part of that task force work, uh, we realize that there is uh, a broader feeling uh, of that nutrition is complex, that it's not mine alone, uh, and that there was a real need for a bit of Global Nutrition 101. And that led us to developing the primer as a tool to kind of very succinctly summarize some of the big uh, issues in global nutrition and have it as a, a foundational tool for policymakers and others working in this field. I'm really pleased to introduce Amy Boudreau, who joined us in November as our research fellow working on global nutrition. She brings tremendous expertise to both our team on global health, but also to the Global Food Security Project. She's kind of dual-hatted working for both of our teams. And she was the lead author of this, this primer, and she'll walk you through some of the key points here in a few minutes. Following her presentation, we will have a panel discussion featuring three very distinguished and experienced professionals in nutrition, including Sean Baker from the Gates Foundation, Beth Dunford from USAID, and Osma Latif from the Bread for the World Institute. Before I turn it over to Amy, there were a number of people who provided valuable time and input into the development of the primer. Wish to thank all of them and especially note Jen Cates and Adam Wexler at the Kaiser Family Foundation who helped quite a bit with the financial and budgetary pieces within the primer. I'd also like to thank Amy and our colleagues Michaela Simono, Jillian Locke, and Catherine Streifel for their efforts to bring together today's event. Amy.
Yay, it worked. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to see such a robust audience today, um, and also a lot of familiar and new faces. Uh, the goal of this primer is purely educational, and the target audience is the more than 90 newly elected members of Congress and their staff. However, there are many takeaways for anyone who is interested in US foreign policy because of how interdisciplinary nutrition is. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that if you work in the field of nutrition. Nutrition affects every aspect of life and therefore can be used as a critical foreign policy tool to elevate other US health investments and humanitarian investments that affect the United States at home and abroad. The process started in December, quickly after I started working at CSIS, and it included 15 stakeholder meetings, which included Hill staff members and other global health and nutrition organizations. And then also the methodology included an external peer review with many of those who were involved in the stakeholder meetings. The end products include an accompanying fact sheet because uh, we learned quickly that Hill staff members um, and, their, and, and the members, actually a 15-page document is pretty long, so the four-page fact sheet is supposed to be a, a real quick snapshot of what is covered in the primer. And then there's also an interactive online report that has three different interactives that are, are truly great. The iLab team here does an excellent job in creating those digital pieces. Uh, and they're, they're all on the website that's on the bottom of every slide, and it's a new page for CSIS.org uh, slash nutrition. So what does it mean when we talk about malnutrition? A common misperception is that malnutrition uh, equals hunger, but in reality, malnutrition encompasses a lot more. It includes uh, broadly just poor nutrition in general. That's what malnutrition means, bad nutrition. And approximately three billion today are malnourished. And that encompasses people who are underweight, overweight and obese, and also people who are micronutrient deficient. And oftentimes micronutrient deficiencies is called the hidden hunger because anybody at any weight can be micronutrient deficient. And they usually don't know because it's not often diagnosed. These three forms are referred to as the triple burden. You can see on the map um, that uh, this is actually data taken from the Global Nutrition Report. And it shows the global prevalence of adult women who are overweight. It also includes uh, children um, who are stunted at a prevalence of over or equal to 20%, and then also equal or over to 20% of women who have anemia. And if you look at the map, you can see that really the triple burden in Africa is quite alarming. Uh, the darker colors is, is more th towards the triple burden, the combination of the two or three. Stunting and wasting uh, are two possible outcomes of undernutrition. Stunting is when a child is too short for his or her age and occurs before the age of five. And stunting not only affects the, the nutritional status and height of the child, but it also deeply impairs the cognitive development of a child that lasts his or her lifetime. Wasting can affect anyone at any age and is defined when an individual's weight is too low for one's height. There's much more complex definitions of these terms, but for the purposes of policy, um, I'm, I'm simplifying them a little bit. Um, and with wasting, most of the data collected focuses on children under the age of five. 
So, and also I wanted to note that this is one of the interactives online where you can actually click on each country individually and see the current status of the three categories of malnutrition. In total, every country is affected by malnutrition. 88% of countries have two forms and 29% have all three forms. So leading on to the next side, malnutrition affects health at every stage of the life cycle. In global nutrition, we focus on adolescence, pregnancy, and the first thousand days of life because this is the critical opportunity for interventions to have, uh, to use a cliche, the biggest bang for the buck. And a thousand days is the critical time of the, the time of conception to the age of two years old. The nutrition of pregnant women and of, adolescent, of an adolescent girl before she comes, becomes pregnant affects the health of a child for his or her life. 20% of growth failure occurs in the womb, and this is when most of the brain development actually occurs. During early life, brain neurons form new connections at a rate of 1,000 and upward per second. Think about that. I mean, that's just amazing that all that happens during pregnancy. Common micronutrient deficiencies during pregnancy and the first 1,000 days include iron, which is the leading cause of anemia, and vitamin A, which also causes blindness. And these are two micronutrients that are critical in interventions today. The long-term effects of malnutrition among adolescent girls predominantly has been ignored in research and interventions until recently. I would probably say in the past five years, it's become a hot topic in research because the research is really showing that to, to have adolescent, you have, really have to target adolescent girls with interventions to have a bigger impact um, for the, not only for the girl, but also for her future offspring. Quickly, most of you probably are aware of these two terms, but I'm gonna review them for those who are not nutrition experts in the room. There are two types of nutrition interventions, and this is critical when we start talking about the actual um, budget implications, which is the primary uh, topic of today's conversation. Many things affect nutritional status besides diets, and it's very, very complex. Uh, and the variables involved for, for investments and also interventions is whether the intervention is nutrition specific or nutrition sensitive. Nutrition specific supports the immediate causes of malnutrition. So those are interventions that are focused on breastfeeding, vitamin A supplementation. Nutrition sensitive interventions support the underlying causes of malnutrition, such as food safety, affordability, water sanitation, and hygiene. And again, this is, this is terminology that, that we nutrition folks use every day, um, and those who aren't working in the field would have, don't really know the difference between the two. But they're critical to understand when we're talking about investments. So looking at nutrition in global health economies and human securities, what does nutrition actually mean when we talk about disease? It plays a major role in infectious diseases and also non-communicable diseases, NCDs, such as the, um, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, um, and undernutrition and micronutrient deficiencies contribute to the risk and the severity of these diseases and can hinder treatment responses. 
During the first two years of life, infections are very frequent, and these infections advert nutrients necessary for growth. With other U.S. global health investments, nutrition is foundational to their success, such as PEPFAR. Adequate nutrition promotes adherence to HIV medication, and it also aids the therapies to work optimally. Nutrition is also important to treat other diseases like malaria and TB. Today, this isn't a statistic I heard a few years ago at the World Food Prize, and it's one that sticks with me about NCDs. Overweight and obesity now are the primary risk factors of NCDs, outpacing unsafe sex and alcohol, drug, and tobacco use combined. Think about that. I mean, it's extremely alarming. From an economy perspective, malnutrition costs the global economy $3.5 trillion, and then NCDs related to obesity and overweight add another $2 trillion to that. Half of the anticipated population growth will occur in nine countries, and those are mostly in Africa. The demographics of the countries are changing. They're growing from rural to urban, and this has huge implications for our food system and also our diets. And most of uh, Africa, 50% of Africa actually today is under the age of 18. You may ask, how does this relate to nutrition? Well, 38% of Africa and 33% of Southeast Asia children are stunted today. Stunting has severe effects on the gray matter of a country. Stunted children across their lifespan produce less, are more likely to drop out of school, and learn less than their non-student stunted peers. Research has shown that one, a 1% 1 loss in adult height because of stunting is associated with a 1.4% loss in economic productivity. Overall, undernutrition can cost countries up to 11% loss in GDP. So, and lastly on this slide, a topic that is on the news every day, foreign policy, conflict, migration, and human security. How does nutrition affect that? Nutrition as a major factor in food security should not be ignored. The National Intelligence Council reported that the risk of food insecurity in many countries of strategic importance for the United States uh, will increase until the year 2025. 60% of undernourished and 79% of stunted children live in countries of conflict. Food insecure countries with armed conflict have the highest outward migration of refugees. Uh, a timely example is the Venezuelan economic crisis today. There was a survey that said that 64% of Venezuelans reported losing an average of 24 pounds, and 90% of migrants to Colombia named lack of food as a reason for leaving and migrating. So quickly, Going over some global nutrition calls to action, the primer goes into much more detail of this, and there's also actually an interactive timeline where you can actually click on each event and learn more about it for global events and also United States events. But when we're looking at the global nutrition landscape, uh, nutrition has been prioritized primarily in the past roughly 10 years, since about 2008. And that's when food prices spiked and the UN initiated the High Level Task Force on Nutrition and Food Security. During that same year, 
the, the great and much, much cited Lancet series on maternal and child undernutrition provided the world with the evidence and consensus necessary to focus on uh, maternal nutrition in the first thousand days. And then in 2012, the World Assembly endorsed a set, a set of six global nutrition targets for 2025. And these nutrition targets really are the blueprint for global nutrition. Other initiatives are the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, the Sustainable Deve Development Goals in 2015, and Nutrition is a Focus of Number Two. And to, uh, to show how cross-cutting nutrition is, nutrition is actually an indicator of 12 of the 17 SDGs. The Nutrition for Growth Summit galvanized investments in 2013 uh, and raised 24 million. And the next Nutrition, uh, growth, nutrition for Growth Summit is in 2020 in Japan, and, and countries are currently planning for that event. And lastly, the Global Nutrition Report started in 2014, and this report is an excellent resource um, that before 2014, a lot of the data was not presented in such a concise and accessible way, and it's published every year. Looking at U.S. leadership, paralleled with the global timeline the past 10 years, 2009, former President Barack Obama initiated the, the Feed for Future um, and committed $3.5 billion and started that initiative within USAID. Uh, and then also three additional reports that I'd like to call out because I'm sure there'll be a discussion today is the USAID multisectoral nutrition strategy, the um, the accompanying monitoring and learning plan, and then also the USG Global Nutrition Coordination Plan. These three reports provide blueprints for integrating nutrition across United States investments. And you can see uh, in, the, in the graphic that there are actually eight departments uh, and agencies that engage in global nutrition activities. Moving on, nutrition within global health. This is one of my favorite slides. Uh, there is only one publicly reported sub-account dedicated to nutrition-specific funding, and it is within USAID's global health programs. This does not mean other funding doesn't go towards global nutrition, but this is the only account that is publicly uh, available and appropriated by Congress. Nutrition comprises of only 1.6% of this sub-account which equates to 0.003% of the total federal budget. To put this in perspective and context, the World Bank did an analysis in 2017 of how much money is needed for the World Health Assembly 2025 targets. The findings revealed that an additional 70 billion is needed over the next 10 years to meet just four of those targets. And those targets include stunting, wasting, breastfeeding, and anemia. These two graphics also appear in the primer. The, the one on, I guess, your, your right or left, uh, <laughs> that one actually shows the, the budgetary process within Congress. So it goes from the president's request to the, the final funding. Um, and you can see that, uh, that the, the numbers vary. So, and many organizations report different funding levels, whether they get them from budget justifications to then also the final funding. This is just for the GHP uh, nutrition-specific sub-account. 
Other funding can also come from the Economic Support Fund, Development Assistance, and Food for Peace. So you really have to look at the footnote when you look at, at graphics on funding to see actually where the money is coming from, whether it was appropriated or it was discretionary funds added on later. As you can see in the other graph, funding, um, or actually, Funding remained stagnant. This was a good year for nutrition because it did bump up to 145 million, but it remained stagnant at 125 since 2016. The second graph shows funding levels for, that were reported to the Global Nutrition Report from 2012 to 2016, and this also includes the nutrition-sensitive funding. So you can see how the numbers vary, and a large portion of budgets go to the nutrition-sensitive interventions. So moving on to the last slide, which um, looks at our analysis of how, how do we improve U.S. global nutrition and increase its impact. CSIS provided an illustrative example in the primer of what could be supported if the actual GHP nutrition subaccount was doubled from 145 to 290. Although this is a big increase to the subaccount, is actually, it's pretty small within the 8.8 .8 billion global health budget, and a small drop in the bucket towards filling the $70 billion necessary that the World Bank uh, su suggested and reported that we need to meet some of the WHA targets. This increase in funding could provide the support to fully implement the multi-sectorial plan, the monitoring and learning plan, and also the coordination plan that USAID has ready and available to be implemented. And this money could also be used to actually support a pilot project utilizing the tools already developed in those plans. To fill the gaps identified in the primer, funding should be strategically allocated to USAID implementation, research, and operations. And for example, 80% of the funding of the 145 additional funding dollars could support implementation and 10% each supporting research and operations. Ideally, a pilot program could focus on the population described earlier that has the most cost benefit, and this includes adolescent girls, pregnant women, and the first 1,000 days, and focus on WHA targets of stunting, wasting, and anemia. The geographic areas could be where Global Health, Feed the Future, and Food for Peace operate to truly emphasize the multi-sectoral approach within USAID. The reason we think that an increase in funding should include operations and research support is that without leadership and funding, these plans will not successfully move forward with proposed goals or reporting. This funding also could support the public dissemination of outcomes and reporting. With a strong research component, a pilot such as what we provided as an example has the potential to provide an evidence base for U.S. policymakers and bilateral institutions on the effectiveness of multisectoral nutrition programs, provide data to assist the identification of the best approach to scale up services that would work, and then also understand interventions that don't work, and identify new pathways to integrate nutrition across U.S. government initiatives while not diluting nutrition as a priority. This concludes the overview, uh, and up next, I anticipate a very fruitful discussion from our panelists. 
Um, so I, I welcome you to come up and join the stage. Thank you. Thank you, Amy, for that overview. Uh, and Amy's gonna join us for the audience Q&A uh, section of our conversation today. So if you have specific questions about the primer, you'll have a chance to hear directly from Amy uh, in a little bit. Um, but first, I want to introduce our panelists for today. Again, we've been joined by a, a real stellar uh, cast of nutrition experts. Uh, we're really thankful to all of them for joining us today. First is Beth Dunford. She is the assistant to the administrator in the Bureau for Food Security and the deputy coordinator for development for Feed the Future at USAID. She is dual-hatted, charged with coordinating implementation of Feed the Future across the US government and overseeing USAID's technical and regional expertise, focusing on improving food security. Beth brings to her current position a lot of extensive experience as a career foreign service officer, including most recently as the mission director in Nepal. Our second panelist has traveled all the way from Seattle to be with us today. Again, very thankful for that. Sean Baker is director of the nutrition team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He also has an extensive career in nutrition. Before he joined the foundation in 2013, he served as vice president and regional director for Africa for the Helen Keller International and as coordinator of the famine early warning system in Southern Africa. He is the former chair of the executive committee for the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement and currently serves as special advisor and ex officio member of the committee. Our third panelist is a trusted collaborator of ours, uh, having served on our task force for women's and family health and advised quite a bit on our nutrition recommendations as part of that final report. Asma Latif is director of the Bread for the World Institute, where she oversees the Institute's research analysis and education on policy issues related to US and global hunger, malnutrition, and poverty. She also serves on the executive committee for the Sun uh, Movement and on the steering committee for the Sun Civil Society Network. Thank you all for joining us today. I've asked each of our panelists to offer a few minutes of opening remarks related to their vantage points on global nutrition and how to maximize U.S. investments. Beth, uh, particularly on the U.S. government and uh, USAID's evolving approach to nutrition. Uh, Sean on the global governance and implementation lens and Ozma on the D.C. policy and advoca advocacy landscape. Uh, and again, we'll have a moderated conversation after their initial remarks and then open it up for Q&A. Thank you. Beth? Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I just thank CSIS for hosting this conversation about nutrition. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And I just think it's really important that we get more and more people engaged in the conversation. Really want to thank our our um, supporters from Capitol Hill have been really pushing the nutrition agenda, um, increasing funding, uh, really supporting Feed the Future, the Global Food Security Act, also Water for the World Act that are all really very, very important um, contributors to our efforts on nutrition. <clears throat> and I think that, um, as was stated, there's been a lot of progress in nutrition. We know that 
Um, since the 1990s, under five mortality has decreased by half. Um, there's been progress across the board since the, since 1990, since 2000, USAID has contributed to saving the lives of 40 million children. I just, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. Feed the Future, we know in the areas where Feed the Future is invested, we've seen a 32% decline in stunting. Um, <clears throat> so this is progress that we've made collectively. A lot of champions here in the room have really helped us get this far. Uh, we launched the multi-sectoral nutrition strategy in 2014 to really bring together all of the US government's tools, resources, expertise to really um, have a more coordinated effort to address nutrition. We put out technical guidance, um, we hired nutritionists, aligned reporting across the agencies on a, on a, on a basic level, and um, really showed leadership in nutrition. But all that said, we all know there's a long way to go. I think that uh, we just heard from the primer a lot of the different areas uh, that we need to focus on. I'm here to tell you um, sort of uh, where we're headed um, that really responds to a lot what you've heard in the primer. Uh, we know that we're off track just generally in nutrition to meet the WHA targets. Hunger is on the rise for the first time in over a decade. Uh, very, very concerning. We know that shocks and stresses uh, that the populations that we work with are increasing in frequency, in severity, in complexity. So as we really work to accelerate the progress uh, that we're seeking in nutrition, we know we have to protect that progress within this more complicated and risky environment. Um, <clears throat> we also know within this context that food systems are evolving incredibly rapidly, uh, more rapidly than I think any of us, uh, we're all catching up to it, I think. Um, we know that, um, that 50 to 70% of food is purchased in rural Africa. Think about that. Poor people in rural Africa are purchasing 50 to 70% of their food. So this is really a game change. But again, this diversification out of grains is not necessarily diversification into nutritious foods. So um, again, diverse diet does not necessarily mean a nutritious diet. Um, does not, a diverse diet doesn't necessarily mean that there is safe, affordable, and nutritious food available year-round. Um, food is also incredibly, uh, there's been a dramatic increase in how far and how much food is on the move. In Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, food on the move has increased by 800%. In Asia, that's 1,000%. So again, this is, these are huge. It's like a revolution out there. Um, Three billion people are on a poor diet. So all that to be said, we know that food systems are not delivering on nutrition. Um, <clears throat> so uh, as the US government, we're looking to take all of our investments across the entire food system and look at how can we um, more effectively help these, this broader food system deliver on nutrition in the areas that we care about. Um, we also know that health systems aren't delivering on nutrition. Um, the coverage of the land, we know what to do on nutrition-specific interventions in health systems. There's the Lancet series, which is great, but we know that that, that isn't reaching uh, enough people at scale to really get the type of nutrition results that we're looking at. So how do we make sure that nutrition is not just an add-on, that it's really sort of um, integral to everything that comes out of the health system and that is reaching at scale? Um, so USAID is committed to working on both of these areas and really making sure that, um, that we're intentionally and strategically collaborating and integrating and co-locating our programs in 
uh, on health systems and our work in the food systems and also our work more broadly in water sanitation, that can we integrate that to make sure that we can deliver that impact at scale. Um, really committed to bringing in partners, recognizing that countries need to own this agenda. Uh, Sean, I know, has done a lot with the Sun Movement. We've been huge supporters on that as well. But helping countries build the capacity, uh, increase their commitment, get the right policies to really deliver on nutrition, and then recognizing, especially nutrition, the role of the private sector, which is something that I think needs a lot more attention. And we're really committed to doing that throughout our work on broader food systems. So um, we're also really committed. Um, we know that there's a lot we don't know about nutrition, uh, especially outside of the essential nutrition actions that have been so well documented in The Lancet. What are the key interventions that really drive change uh, for the rest of the agri-food system, for our work in WASH? There's so much that could be done. Where do we put our scarce resources? So we're really committed um, to the operational research um, in order to figure out how we can better hone our investment. So we've got a lot of research products underway. We'll be doing more under new programs we just launched that I think were mentioned earlier. Um, so again, committed to building the evidence base for what works and what's most effective. Um, and then finally, I just want to say that we're committed to elevating nutrition. We're making organizational changes uh, to do this. Administrator has focused uh, on um, uh, transforming USAID. And within that, elevating nutrition has been one of his key goals. Uh, Congress just yesterday um, cleared our congressional notification that notified the reorganization that we're proposing. So yay, we're really excited about that, yay. <laughs> and so within this reorganization, um, there will be a new Bureau for Resilience and Food Security. Within this bureau, there will be four centers. One of them is a center for nutrition that elevates nutrition across the agency. It will be the home for nutrition. Now, again, we're not bringing over all of the resources and people from global health. Global health will still have the lead on nutrition as nutrition-specific interventions, connections with the health system. Um, we have some of our colleagues from Global Health here today, Anne, who can talk more about that. Again, Food for Peace will still have the lead on emergency nutrition interventions. But again, in RFS will be a nutrition center that will be the home. And to govern all of this, to bring it together at the leadership level, really make sure it's elevated, there will be a nutrition leadership council that will be headed by the assistant to the administrator for resilience and food security, right? Uh, Right now, that's me. Um, again, and the AAs from Global Health and from the um, Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. That will seek to ensure that from a leadership level, we are able to pull together, strategically plan, integrate, and coordinate. So we're really excited um, for all of that. Um, and we're already starting to lean in. This Nutrition Leadership Council has already been stood up. And we are actively looking to stand up the Nutrition Center structurally as well. Just one final note that I'll mention um, is that, you know, as I said, our administrator is very focused on the journey to self-reliance, really put out there as the North Star that's guiding everything that we do. And within this, we recognize that we'll be seeking to achieve development outcomes uh, in nutrition that we all know, but also equally be seeking um, uh, to measure our success on the capacity and commitment of countries to take this effort forward themselves. That would be the country's own sort of commitment of putting money in, having the right policies in place, having the capacity to execute, and then also um, the health of the private sector and the engagement of the private sector um, to move it forward as well. Um, with that, um, I'll, I'm over time. I have lots <laughs> more to say. Thank you.
So I saw I would be on the panel with Beth, and I said, Beth, I only come if you've got some new news to announce. <laughs> and she did, and so I came. Thank you, Congress. But no, I, and I, I start with that, so a huge congratulations, because I'll tie it into, I think, that sort of leadership from USAID is exactly the modeling the behavior we're asking of governments of high burden countries. At the end of the day, we actually do know what to do, uh, but any country that's truly made progress in reducing undernutrition has had that high level political leadership that can get these different sectors to work together. And that's, I guess, where I was going to start my remarks. And so you have to be careful of the timing because once I get talking about nutrition, I can go for a long time. Of, I, I want to come back to actually one of the first data points that, that were up there on Amy's slide. You know, the evidence is really excruciating that undernutrition is the attributable cause of 45% of under five deaths. Now, as nutritionists, you know, scientists, we have this really, it's like we want to have very carefully worded language. That means basically if those kids had not been undernourished, they would be alive today. And as importantly, those kids who survive undernutrition we know we fundamentally cut off their cognitive development. So when I think of resilience, I think in a very fundamental terms of that thousand day window, either you do all the damage and we're undermining those kids' future, or on my more optimistic days, where I tend to be, if we lock in good nutrition of those thousand days, we have locked in the potential for survival and thriving of those kids. And when you tell that story, and I speak to a lot of audiences who are not nutrition specialists, you tell that and then you say, but if you look at how the world's investing in nutrition, people's jaws drop. I call it the 45%, 1% disconnect. With all of that incredible burden, but all the incredible solutions, and if you look at what's invested just from official development assistance, which is not in fact the most important number, less than 1%, even after nutrition for growth. You know, there's just this enormous disconnect between the, the burden of the potential for impact and the level of investment. And that's where I get to, I think Amy had laid out the, I think the chronology. I having worked in nutrition for over three decades, I do think the last decade has been transformational in a way that I certainly had not seen and I think we need to continue to seize this opportunity. Um, I feel many of us who've been working in the field of nutrition feel a deep personal commitment that we've never had this level of visibility. We've got to translate it into results. And that's why I would go back to the 2008 Lancet Nutrition Series because it was, I think, it was a seminal publication on several fronts. There was a strong technical consensus about what works. There was a strong consensus on the thousand day window and so that has helped rally the community. Perhaps though, what was most important was a political economy analysis, which is basically saying that the global nutrition system is broken. And so it was a real slap in the face saying, look, we are failing the people who we've dedicated our lives to. And how do we self change that? And that is where the scaling up nutrition movement was born, a sense that you know, this is too important for one actor, this has got to be a global movement to change the scenario. And if I look at the root cause of what, well, why are we in this situation with nutrition and what is the, try, the scaling up nutrition movement trying to solve for, I try to boil it down into four words. Uh, invisible, 
orphan, unmeasured, and voiceless. Invisible because, as we've seen, I think in the public's mind, malnutrition is that severely emaciated child who needs immediate care for severe acute malnutrition. And of course, those are tragic situations, but that's just the very tip of the iceberg of the true burden of undernutrition. Orphan, well, who owns nutrition? Beth, now we know you do, but that's important, and I say that, but that's what's, you know, nobody dislikes nutrition, but is it health? Is it the food? Is it the food system? Is it private sector food industries? Is it agriculture? Is it, is it social uh, protection programs? In fact, we do need all these actors. The unmeasured, it's been grossly unmeasured just the status indicators, and until recently, we actually didn't have a strong consensus about the actionable indicators of what interventions do we need to scale up, and how do we make sure that in the health system, those are being delivered. What does the ag system need to do? And then voiceless, uh, I in my, used to have a parallel life working on the technical review, review panel of the Global Fund, and got a lot of insights about how the HIV community organized itself. You know, there were activists who were scaling walls of parliament. We don't have stunted children scaling walls of parliament. And so I think the Sun movement is really trying to put countries in the driver's seat, but saying, look, you need to make commitments. You need to have strong coordination by governments that are at a high political level. And we, as partners supporting these governments, need to do the same thing, both in countries where we work and then also in the global stage. Uh, and USAID has been a founding member of the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, very active in the donor network, and I think the huge opportunity of this new move is also to make sure this global leadership is also replicated at the country level to make sure that even at the USAID mission level, it's the, the mission director who is yeah. really taking the lead. And I think that leadership, not just the financial resources, but that political sh leadership of USAID in country can be really transformational. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this panel. Uh, congratulations to CSIS for this primer. It's, it's amazing to see all this information in one place, and especially the history that Sean referred to. Um, and thank you also for recognizing the role of advocacy in moving this, this issue. It's been really important, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm sitting up here, but I, it has been a really important group effort, coalition effort in DC, for about a decade, and I'm looking out at Lucy Sullivan here, and Thousand Days have been an amazing partner, and many other um, organizations. Um, it's true that USAID has been a leader in nutrition long before the Lancet series. I mean, the Lancet series really reflected the evidence that USAID was building up through its programming over decades. But the Lancet series, as, as Sean and Beth point out, really were a rallying cry for advocates as well. The information was so clear and succinct. The problem was defined in such a stark way that an organization like Bread for the World that had been focused on hunger for, at that time, 30 years, hadn't really been talking about nutrition. And it really just did change the way we began to think about our work. And it came, um, you know, in the fact that there were concrete solutions, a target population, 
made, made it crystal clear what needed to be done. And it came at a time when the world was really grappling with a global food price crisis. And that created an opportunity for a dialogue with policymakers who were really trying at that stage to come up with a comprehensive solution. Um, so, you know, as advocates, we seized on this information. I know my boss, David Beckman, ran down the hallway saying, we have to do something about this. So we seized on, the, on this information and really began to engage with our partners, our fellow advocates on what do we do with this information. And as the Obama administration was, you know, coming in, looking at trying to solve the food security, it, it come up with, to, with solutions um, to the food security crisis and you know, what would come, become Feed the Future, we were, as an advocacy community, poised to make the case that nutrition needed to be really integrated into that approach. And so Feed the Future ended up having two objectives. One was raising incomes, and the other was improving maternal and child nutrition. And that took, you know, uh, a, a um, cons cons concerted effort on our part to have a clear message about why this was important. Um, once Feed the Future was up and running, um, it became clear to the advocacy community that having nutrition in there without um, you know, clear guidance on what to do once it's an objective um, was an issue. And we could see that there were various parts of USAID working on nutrition, but it wasn't really getting, still getting the attention that it needed. And so um, you, you, we um, worked together in the lead up to the first Nutrition for Growth Summit to really engage the administration on developing a strategy, both a U.S. government uh, strategy, the, what ended up being the U.S. Uh, government's nutrition coordination plan, but also um, one of the commitments that um, the U.S. government made at Nutrition for Growth was uh, the multi-sectoral nutrition strategy at USAID. And that has really, I think that was another, so the Lancet series was a really important moment. In my view, the multi-sectoral nutrition strategy was also a game changer because it really did change the conversation within the agency about how each of the sectors really contribute to this um, joint up goal of uh, reducing maternal and child malnutrition. Um, we, there are many lessons learned uh, along the way. Um, we really have some insights into what works in terms of advocacy, evidence, um, you know, I'm, the clarity of the recommendations of the Lancet. The return on investment, you know, the Copenhagen consensus, um, you know, really put nutrition as one of the smartest economic decisions that uh, countries and donors could make. But that return on investment really changes the conversation, brings new people into the discussion. Country ownership, I think, uh, you know, all of this conversation around sun and nutrition was hap happening alongside, you know, much more... Uh, um, focus on country ownership, country leadership, and country building local and country capacity. And I think that's an important part of the story. 
country, and this, it goes to the journey to self-reliance, that we are helping countries really take, take over these issues for themselves and really empowering countries to be in the, the leadership role. The impact, I think when we started the conversation around nutrition for growth, you know, there were real concerns that we were making commitments as U.S., you know, uh, in the U.S., that were going to be really hard to, to achieve around the stunting, uh, stunting targets for Feed the Future. And it's been really great to see that we've actually, you set goals, you can actually achieve them. And that impact really has helped generate support on the Hill for uh, nutrition. I just want to, I know I'm on time, but while, you know, the DC community was doing, you know, engaging the administration on this, we were also helping to build the support on the Hill. So over the last 10 years, steadily, there's been slow but steady increases in funding for nutrition, a slight hiatus for about three years where they stayed put at the 125 million level, but it's really nice to see the bump up last year of 20 million for nutrition. And I think that is a reflection because we are seeing results on the ground. And members of Congress, uh, congressional staff are beginning to understand why nutrition is important. There are lots of lessons learned for the future, but I'll I'll wait for that for the next round. Thank you, Oscar. <laughs> Beth, maybe I can start with you with a follow-up question. Um, obviously, we've spent a lot of time focused on talking about the USAID and the US component to the global piece. I'm just wondering from your perspective, we, we know how the CN, the reorg is gonna happen, but are there other things that you think the agency needs to achieve its nutrition goals, whether financial or human capital, flexibility on integration, more partnership? Um, are, how is the agency working to address those and are there things that the broader community can do to be helpful? So thanks for the question. I think, again, the most important uh, elements are really in the proposed reorganization and the governance structure that really brings together <clears throat> our resources and funding streams from global health, um, <clears throat> from Bureau for Resilience and Food Security and from our Humanitarian Assistance Bureau. Um, so that's the most important thing. I think that um, you know, as the Nutrition Leadership Council has stood up, they are very busy at work. Uh, we are very, very busy at work, and the t technical teams underneath us defining an agenda about what we need to do. And I think that recognizing that you know our funding comes from different funding streams and different you know appropriation committees, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how do we bring that together in our planning processes? We're working a lot of that, and then how do we? make sure that we're planning together on the ground, how we're measuring across all of our different funding streams. So again, th this is something that we've been working on for quite some time, and now we've got the mandate and uh, folks listening to us to really pull that together to make sure that our institutional processes go beyond personality-based solutions, that I get along really well with Anne, et cetera, et cetera, um, to make sure that this is something that will outlast all of us in our structures and how we report and how we our processes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of, um, <clears throat> some boring bureaucratic stuff, but it really will ensure that these kinds of things happen um, going forward. Um, our missions are, are starting to really work. We're working with our missions, supporting them <clears throat> to design their programs together to think, okay, what do we want to do about nutrition? We've got 
water, everyone's talking about the sort of nutrition budget line, but again, just let me reiterate, that is a small part of what we do on nutrition. That is the one that says nutrition next to it and is controlled um, in global health with Anna and her team. But again, you know, how do we make sure that we all think about nutrition when we get up in the morning? These, our agriculturalists need to think about nutrition when they get up. So this is a lot of sort of mindset, working on mindsets, um, our water folks, and how do we pull that together for more integrated programming? And that's something that we're working on actively with our mission folks. As, as you know, we're a, a very decentralized agency. We put out policy guidance from the center and work to really influence those programs on the ground. Sean, I wanted to draw upon your vast experience on implementation on the ground and kind of going to this last point by Beth. From your perspective, how can we improve the kind of symbiotic relationship between what's learned on the ground through implementation and bring that back up to policy and to inform policymakers and uh, in particular appropriators and others about what's working and what might need to be improved? I, I was actually going to start perhaps with four points, but I was going to perhaps start um, with two points that are a bit the other way around, uh, building on Beth's point. I think one of the huge advantages of USAID is the connectivity between access to the best global evidence and then presence in all hybrid countries in the world almost. And so I think as in many parts of global health and development, you know, evidence changes, but the time between getting new global evidence to actually translating that into what's relevant in a country can take a long time. And so I think USAID has a huge comparative advantage of being able to accelerate that, that, that transmission. And building on the second point that, that Beth had raised is, so for example, there's going to be a new review on the impacts of large-scale food fortification on anemia reduction. I think large-scale food fortification had almost been about, I mean, here's an, an opportunity to get new global evidence about a solution that works. Is this relevant now in your country? And how do you accelerate that uptake of new evidence? I think the other uh, is the, as, as Beth had said, that it's one thing to make nutrition relevant to nutritionists, but we're yeah. not gonna change the dynamic. How do you, for example, make sure that anybody working in the health sector understands that here are the 10 non-negotiable things you do through the health sector for nutrition, no matter whose money it is, because yes, I do want more money for nutrition, yeah. but yeah. as importantly, yeah. there's a lot of money out there that can do a lot of work for nutrition if all the actors understand what they should be doing within those budgets. Uh, and I could go on and on about missed opportunities, which I abhor. Uh, and then, but, so now I will actually take your question, I think. To me, an incredible comparative advantage of USAID is being on the ground and that really taking very rigorously the science of how. How things get implemented and doing that with rigor, that that can inform the global policy. So take something like treatment of severe acute malnutrition, which had, arose out of basically humanitarian sector, but in fact there's more of a burden of severe acute malnutrition in countries that are in non-humanitarian crisis situations, and it should be in fact just an essential part of the continuum of care in the health system. Well, that sounds great. How do you actually make that happen, understanding the barriers to good screening, appropriate capacity, and the supply chain? Bringing rigor to that, that really deeply informs, I think, global policy. 
Uh, and the last one I will go to, and I think again, you know, USAID carries probably more water for the world in measurement of health outcomes than any other donor, particularly for the demographic and health surveys. And while it's good that we're fixated on stunting, but that's the long-term goal. And the pathway to stunting is a long one, and we have to have things that communicate on a more daily, regular basis that are actionable. And I think we're much smarter now about what are the interventions we need to do, what is the consensus on those coverage indicators, how do we manage them and communicate them to program managers, decision makers, and politicians. That the stunting is, by nature is going to be a slow move, but we can get real traction on things that and saying we are delivering the right things to the right people, and that, that will translate into something. And I think given USAID's footprint, that's an especially sweet spot to focus on. Thank you. Osma, maybe picking up a little bit on that, just given your experience, you talked quite a bit about uh, engaging with Congress and moving the needle on the funding, uh, but what sort of messages are you finding having traction? I mean, in terms of, um, you know, again, one of the reasons we decided to put this primer together is that global nutrition is this vast space. Um, how do you articulate that in, in terms of your work with Congress and, and what, what's gaining traction with them in terms of the messages? I think definitely um, one thing that's getting traction is, is seeing some results. Um, and the evidence, uh, I think we need to have a, a clear story about um, how these investments need to, uh, will, are used and the outcomes that are, are, um, come of those investments. I think there is still, I mean, you have champions who, who understand why nutrition is important. I think there's still a long way to go in helping uh, champions and broadening the tent of champions in understanding how nutrition is important to their specific interests. I think, you know, the, it's still somehow seen in a more sectoral ways, and there is a lot that we need to do to really, uh, to, to demonstrate and, and show that nutrition is actually foundational and um, underlies all U.S. investments in global health and development. And I think once that once we shift that frame, um, it'll be a much easier task in getting people to invest in, in this. I think another area, and we've talked a lot about the challenges of um, investing, uh, of implementing a multi-sectoral approach. Part of the challenge is the funding comes in sector-specific ways, and Congress is a is leading that effort. Um, some of that is important because it guides uh, and sends clear messages of, of priorities and, and that's important. But at the same time, you need the flexibility on the ground in, at the country level to be able to implement a comprehensive approach. And so thinking, you know, thinking about um, next, you know, next steps is really beginning to engage Congress, the, you know, they have increased their investment in nutrition. Um, they are uh, su 
through the Global Food Security Act, really demonstrated support for um, this work. But that next step of how do we accelerate progress on nutrition and what will that take and what is their role in making that happen. And so really, un I think the key to that is have, helping them see how foundational nutrition is to absolutely everything they care about. Thanks. So maybe um, drawing along this line a little bit further, I wonder if maybe each of you could speak to what multi-sectoral or integration means to you. I mean, I think it can, it can come out in a lot of different ways. How do you think about it, and, and what would be the, the benchmark of success uh, in terms of really having nutrition integrated with other areas? I mean, I, I guess I'll just make a couple of points. One is that we're not integrating just for integration's sake. Uh, it has to be strategic. And it's, it's really getting together in that strategy planning phase to see how we can bring together all these different resources in one place. If you have really amazing um, behavior change communication coming out of the health system um, and there's no nutritious food in the market that's safe, affordable, um, and available, it, it's really not going to get you that far. If we're really focusing on getting those orange flesh sweet potatoes out, but again, all of these, we don't have clean water, et cetera, et cetera. So we, you need it all to make it work. And so I think um, a successful nutrition, a nutrition intervention will find great difficulty in moving results if you do not have a lot of those pieces together. So for me, the success is driving nutrition outcomes, which we can't do. Uh, alone and really making sure that, again, it's everyone feels like it's their job to come together. It doesn't always mean that we geographically co-locate. Um, it may not make sense, right? Um, uh, but I think that just making sure that we're planning together to make sure our national systems level work as we've thought it through with what we're doing on the ground, um, where we need to intervene in the food systems, uh, where we want to work on broader water systems, et cetera, et cetera, I think that's what's going to make the difference. I wasn't ignoring you. I was actually looking up a quote, which I can't find yet, but I'll try to find it before the end. Um, so I'm a f firm believer in multi-sectoral approaches. I also see the dark underbelly because it can become extremely confusing. And it's like, oh, if it's so complex, how it kind of, you know, it's, it's not good to lead with complexity. And I think as nutritionists, that sometimes has been our problem. Of course, it is a complex issue. Our job is to distill it into actionable activities and accountabilities for each sector. So I often don't use the word integration, but co-delivery. And I think the key is to really look at understanding what's the problem, what is the pathway to solving that problem, and then within that pathway, who are the actors that need to do what? And you don't need to have everybody understand every piece. It's everybody, the person who's, the sector that's responsible for a piece needs to understand exactly what that sector has to do. So if, the, if you have skilled attendants at birth and that skilled attendant is not supporting that mom to breastfeed more than one hour, something failed. The health sector failed right there. So you can have those accountabilities. If you're not having an ag system that is focusing on smallholder women farmers and providing them inputs, we know that we're not going to have the transformation. Um, and so it's really being very crisp about what those accountabilities are 
And, and sometimes it will be trade-offs because we're working in systems that it, you can't do everything for everybody at all times. So how do you actually work through what are going to be the most the, the most impactful things to do in a given setting, make crisp accountabilities and measure it well. And that does require that high level political coordination so that it's not, again, that every part needs to know every piece, but that you've actually got, I, you know, I'm, I was at the opera last night. In my dream world, I would be the conductor in an opera house. I can't sing a note, right? I can't do scenery, but that's the idea you want to have every, every person the orchestra playing his or her part, the conductor in this case, she was a woman playing her part, the singers. It's to bring it all together, but not everybody has to play every role in every instrument. Um, I agree with everything that's been said. Perhaps another way of saying it is really looking at these, the end user in, our, in the case in our case, it's mothers and their children, and really centering the programs and the approach around their needs. I remember when we went on the CSIS task force uh, trip to Zambia, we were looking at a program that was meant to um, address maternal mortality. And the program was all designed around the 48 hours around delivery. And you know, I was I was looking at it through my nutrition advocacy lens, and so I was asking about you know, uh, knowing that anemia really contributes to 45% or 40% of, or 40 of uh, um, maternal mortality. Were they catching the anemia cases earlier on in the pregnancy or in the lead up? Were there any programs? underway that were complementary to that effort around that, and there weren't. And so that was absolutely a missed opportunity. So to me, integration is really thinking about uh, the woman throughout her pregnancy and not just at the end point, and making sure that in the lead up to the pre her pregnancy, she's healthy and well-nourished. During her pregnancy, she's getting the right nutrients so that when she delivers, A, she survives the delivery, and B, her child is healthy, and she can then, you know, as, as her child grows up, really thinking about what is around her so that she is getting the best support she can to be able to nourish her children through that thousand-day window. That, to me, is integration. Thanks, Asma. I'm going to ask one more question to our panelists, and then I'm going to open it up, so think about what your questions are. Um, zooming out a little bit, uh, Amy highlighted quite a bit the $70 billion gap, um, and clearly uh, even doubling U.S. resources is a small drop in that bucket. How do we bring in more partners into this space? You know, how are, how are we going to try to fill that gap? And is there more opportunity to be engaging with the private sector, um, with other philanthropies and other partners? Where are we seeing more country movement? What are your thoughts on that from your various vantage points? I think I would just go back to um, the administrator's vision for USAID, the journey to self-reliance. This is, in the end, about a country's capacity and commitment to take this forward. We don't have the resources to fill this gap. Um, we won't have the resources to fill this gap. And we shouldn't 
fill this gap. That's not our role as donors, as foundations. Uh, while I want more resources from all, all places to go be focused on nutrition, our role is to build the capacity of countries to take this forward on their own. Now that takes resources, that takes commitment, that takes political leadership, that takes uh, ensuring we have the right policies so private sector can engage and succeed. It takes us helping to incentivize private sector investment in places where we want them to invest in poorer regions and in, in types of crops that we want that we think are important for nutrition. So there's a whole, there's a lot of work to do. This isn't to say this isn't our responsibility, that we don't want to engage. This just says that in the end, uh, it's going to be country governments, civil society, the private sector that have the resources that are needed to take this forward. And that has to be our focus away from direct delivery of services to a facilitative approach. Um, I'm, I'm really echoing uh, Beth's point of view. I mean, I think it's a very different world out there. And that's obviously, as donors, we need to continue to focus resources and increase resources on the issue that's been so neglected and close those opportunity gaps. But I think our role is a very different than buying scale. It's very much about how do you work within systems to get the systems to help deliver best. Um, I think part of the challenge is how do you have that narrative because it can be easier to contribute uh, to tell donors, be they uh, members of Congress or individual high, uh, individuals, oh well, you bought a vitamin A capsule where in fact I think our role is no longer to buy coverage. It's really how do you work within systems. And to me, and when I get really goosebumps about the scaling up nutrition movement, you actually see things like that. Uh, and so, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire, by joining the scaling up nutrition movement, it gave the, 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 the opening for nutrition to be moved from the Ministry of Health to actually be coordinated under the office of the vice president. Uh, they have a very robust national nutrition plan. Uh, the government itself has put in a lot of its own resources. Uh, they're using those resources, their, their concessional funding from the World Bank, a lot is going into nutrition. And so that is, you know, how can we as donors help that, help shape that, provide some of the technical assistance to get that. But to me, those are the sorts of transformations I think we have to see. And there are also things, I mean, for example, one of the best ways to eliminate micronutrient malnutrition, one of the most cost-effective ways, is large-scale food fortification. In fact, the roles of donors is extreme. I mean, at the end of the day, almost all of that is absorbed by the companies themselves and the consumers. And when you actually, we had, interestingly, a, a roundtable in Nigeria uh, last year with al Haji Aliko Dangote, one of the premier business people in Africa and the premier uh, philanthropist in Africa, and Bill Gates, to directly communicate to the CEOs of the producers of salt, cooking oil, sugar, and wheat flour, the four uh, products that are being fortified. And that escalation of the discussion to the CEO saying, look, you've got to have skin in the game. It, it truly is transformational. And those are bringing, you know, those are bringing resources to the table that are incredibly powerful. So I think as donors, we, have, we will continue to have an incredibly important role, but I think it's much more a catalytic role than the direct uh, buying of services role. 
I'm not ready to give up on Congress yet. So, so I think we have to continue to push and make the case that what, what Congress appropriates for nutrition is leveraging the private sector. It's leveraging um, investments by countries themselves. It's leveraging other donors and multilaterals in this space. Um, I'm excited that there is a resolution out there uh, in Congress recently introduced, um, HRES 189, that is really going to be a tool to help educate um, the new Congress and lots of freshman members about nutrition, about this opportunity, to educate them about the great work that has been done, but then what needs to be done. How do we accelerate? How do we move the needle on nutrition? And so really um, making the case that, that um, Congress and the U.S. government are, can play a catalytic, catalytic role in accelerating progress. Thanks, Asma. Thanks to all three of you. Uh, we'll go ahead and open it up to uh, audience questions now. <laughs> Amy, if you would like to join. Might have to grab a chair. That working. We've got a couple of microphones that'll be uh, coming through the audience. We'll take maybe two or three questions, comments at a time. I just ask that you identify yourself and keep your interjection as, as brief as possible. So let's start here, because it's the first hand I saw. Vidi, if you want to come here. Oh, okay, thank you. And then we'll go Lucy here and over here. And we'll do those four, and then we'll go another round. Great, thank you very much. I'm John Coonrod with The Hunger Project, and I really appreciate your doing this because, as was mentioned, this is a long journey, and having something new in this long journey is really good, and I really endorse Sean's comment about the top 10 list for frontline health workers. I mean, in our field programs, that's who people listen to. And if the frontline health workers don't have Sean's top 10 list, it won't make a dent. My question is about the price of nutritious food. Do we have any examples of policy changes that have shifted that balance, um, the gap between the price of nutritious food and nutrition-poor calories? Hi, uh, Lucy Sullivan, 1,000 Days. First off, congratulations, Amy and CSIS. This is great, really a terrific resource. Um, I wanna underscore two things that Asma said. Um, number one, I'm also not ready to give up on Congress, um, and, and it's related to the second piece, which is I'm, I'm so glad you brought up uh, anemia and women's nutrition. Um, I was surprised I didn't hear more about women's nutrition um, in, this, uh, in this report, in the panel, but um, I know there's a lot to talk about there. Um, $90 million is what donors spend on uh, tackling um, anemia, maternal anemia. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous, given that this is a problem that uh, impacts, um, I think it's half a billion women. Uh, so I would argue that there's a strong case to be made to Congress um, that this needs to be a focus, particularly given that anemia saps health and it saps women's economic productivity, which we know is very important and is a focus of this administration as well. So, Thanks. no question, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, there's a lady two rows back and then we'll come over here. Was this you? 
Great. Thank you, everyone. Monica Kotari from Maximizing Quality of Scaling Up Nutrition Project Path. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for excellent presentations. Thanks for the primer. And congratulations to USAID for this announcement. Really welcome. I, I just wanted to make two comments and kind of questions. So as part of the project mandate that we have, uh, we support scaling up nutrition countries to develop the multi-sectoral action plans on the request of the Secretariat and the government. And I wanted to pick up on Sean's orchestra beats. And when we are going to the countries and helping them develop the plans, it looks like that they really don't know how to create these, this orchestra, how to create the multi-sectoral action plan and the process of it. Once you help them do that, they basically put together all the sectors together. They define the notes, what they have to play, and go back and realize that, oh, the sectors are playing the notes, but not in the same way to create the music for nutrition, but they are playing the notes on a different scale, on a different way. So, so just a plea to everybody that how can we actually align those notes, and we are seeing these multi-sectoral action plans, or CRF, are, are really the place to, as a starter to help them do that. And the last point is that once you go to the next level of costing them, it's just really no data to help us cost, like in spite of all the work, especially the nutrition sensitive pieces. Like what kind of cost do you put? Because countries ask us, we want to go to the donors to ask for help, but we don't know what to ask for because we don't know how to cost it or don't have the cost. So any, any reflections on those will be helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, one more right here, and then we'll go back to the panel. Hi, uh, Julie Howard. I'm a, a senior advisor here at CSAS, the Global Food Security Program, and just thank you for all the leadership that's embodied there on the, uh, on the panel, CSIS. So I completely support uh, the, the notion of strengthening countries' local capacity to lead on this issue, but I think the donor community, the U.S., others have also uh, obviously a, a, a duty to lead. And I ask myself, so as, as, an, as an Aggie, uh, I mean, we are laboring under still the, the Green Revolution. We're benefiting from the fruits of the Green Revolution, but our investments you know, are really, really skewed to cereal crops, for example. And I think, you know, Beth, that's still largely reflected in the priorities of Feed the Future, the country systems, and Sean, I mean, that's still reflected also in Gates' priorities on the agriculture sector, and certainly in, in Agra's priorities. So, so what, what can we do collectively, you know, to sort of say, yes, you know, we're gonna strengthen countries' capacities to lead on nutrition, but we're also going to start shifting our own investments to a more nutritious, a more diversified portfolio of commodities. Thanks. All right, well, why don't we just start, Beth, if you wanna jump in on these points, and we'll just go down the line. So Julie, uh, Julie, I'll go to your point first. Um, I think that um, you're right, I think that our investments are very skewed, uh, have been very skewed towards cereals, and I think that we're, we've been really undertaking a very data-driven review of where we can see the most impact and where we need to be, uh, you know, sort of channeling our research investments that will be towards the crops that, uh, that poor people grow, that drive nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking at this broad evidence-based review of our research portfolio, and we expect to see 
um, you know, shifts going forward. That's something that we're actively working on. I think that also, I mean, looking at, at countries, we know that the national research systems are completely broken in most of these countries where we work. And really, that's an important part of really getting uh, getting research going in these areas to be adapt varieties that work in countries where where we know it's most important to really be able to get um, nutritious uh, crops, uh, seeds, et cetera, for nutritious crops out to farmers. So that's that's something that's that we're definitely actively working on. So we agree with you there. Um, I think the other point I just wanted to make um, is on on policies that um, affect the price of nutritious foods. I think that you know Sean talked about food fortification. That's an important policy that you know, they're coming out with a lot of evidence on what it can actually do. I think that recognizing, again, like I was talking about the explosion or the revolution within the agri-food system that is happening at an incredible rate, there are tens of thousands more small and medium enterprises that make this whole food system operate that's enabled a 800% lengthening in the the, the um, journey from farm to fork in Africa, 1,000% lengthening in Asia, et cetera, et cetera. So these small and medium enterprises exist, but they're not, um, they're not as efficient or effective as they need to be and they can be. And again, sort of engaging with these, these enterprises, making sure that there are right policies that foster their growth, access to finance, um, again, us as donors and other organizations leaning in with technical assistance to build their capacity, uh, both on business skills and, and are they thinking about foods in the nutritious way. So that the efficiency in that SME sector is a really important area to look at how this food can become more affordable um, as these efficiencies grow. Uh, I could go on all day about some of these, so yeah. I was going to try to quickly go through several of the points that was raised. So I first was going to have one fight with Lucy and one agreement with Lucy. Uh, I was criticized not saying women's nutrition enough. I actually thought there were two people going through the thousand-day journey. But, I, and I, but it's important, I think, because, and I, I say that not just to be cheeky, but I like to be cheeky with you, particularly Lisa, Lucy. But it's so essential, I think, that it is truly, you know, it, it is the mom and the child dyad that we need to take excruciatingly seriously during the thousand day window. Uh, anemia, I think, I, I concur that there needs to be more investment in anemia, but I think this is also where we can get a lot less anemia for the same amount of money because so much of it is missed opportunities, like in great increases in ANC coverage. But Women are not getting their iron folic acid. They're not getting their intermittent presumptive treatment for malaria. They're not getting deworming. Those aren't additional costs, per se. It's having the health sector actually take this seriously. That ANC with no quality is, not, is pretty anemic. Um, the price of nutritious foods, uh, so Beth stole the fortified. I think it is, to me, there are not a lot of examples. And I think this is where one has to fundamentally shift what we are what we are measuring, because if you look at most ag ministers, what they obsess about is the food balance sheet, and we know that's all based on calories. And if you look underneath of it, how much is the nutrition in that food balance sheet, it's, it's very poor. Just to take a case, I think IFPRI had done an analysis of the relative price of an egg. Now, an egg is a good barometer of an affordable, nutritious food. In Nigeria, if you are in the fourth economic quintile, 
so not even the poorest of the poor, one egg a day is going to cost you 44% of your income. So here we are going to promote moms, feed your kid egg, eat an egg, and we, it's just not, there's a disconnect between the affordability and, and the nutrition of the foods. Um, I think the point is extremely well taken on costing that, and Ellen and I were actually just having this discussion. I do think there's been and for the nutrition-specific interventions, I think we're much smarter on costing, yeah. and we can do a lot better job of, with a given bucket of resources, how do you best allocate? The other sectors, the evidence is getting better. It's not ideal. I think that one has to move forward with what's the best evidence we have to date, knowing it's imperfect, but it's at least directionally correct, and keep to iterating. I think this is part of the learning agenda that, again, I think USAID is embracing of, you know, we've got to try, measure, adjust, and the better we get, the smarter we'll get. Um, I think the point around the Green Revolution, I think I've answered it to a bit, that one has to rebalance the focus of ag. We can't not produce the staples, but how do you both increase the nutritional quality of staples for things like biofortification, but then also how do you have more animal source foods being produced, consumed by the right people, et cetera, to have a more balanced approach to what, what's available in the food system. Um, I was going to get, I did find my quote, but do you want, okay. So anyway, because I, as you may have seen, I worked for Helen Keller International for a number of years, and one of the advantages is she was a very quotable woman. And I think of it, when I think of multi-sectoral coordination, because it can seem so complicated. So she had a quote that I actually reflect on a lot in these complex situations. I am only one, but I am still one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. And so to me, it's all, about defining for each person what's the something he or she can't do. I'll just uh, add on to Lucy's outrage around anemia. I remember when we were doing the task force report, um, I think Sarah's job was to cost out all the various components of um, the various interventions that we were proposing. And the number for anemia was so low that it was almost an embarrassingly low number. 12 and then million we a went, year. Hmm? 12 million a year. 12 million a year. So we, we grappled with, I mean, do we want to put out such a low number? Are we under, underestimating? And no, we got, we got confirmation that that is, a, that is a, the reasonable amount. It's a drop in the bucket, it's so little money, and there are so many platforms to address anemia. Um, there's the health platform, you, f the food systems platform, the school feeding platform, and we are underutilizing all of these platforms to address this issue that affects half a billion women. It's, it's outrageous. Um, on the multi-sectoral, plan and costing. I, I mean, it is, it is really, really, really hard. It's been, it was hard, it was hard for USAID to do it. Um, it took a couple of years and then the whole of government part of it. Um, so, I mean, as a sun country, it is incredibly 
hard, and but I, I'm really, as we live into this, the implementation's gonna be even harder, as we're seeing, but I think this is a really big, I think the learnings from the nutrition work and sun, in particular multi-stakeholder, multi-sectoral, will really help other sectors as well. I mean, I think if we crack this nut, um, it's going to be really impactful in the whole field of global development and global health. So it's really worth doing, and I think the more that we can help build that capacity at the country level for them you know, to, to do it for themselves and really um, do it well will be money well spent. Uh, in regards to the cost of food or the cost of nutrient-dense food, one thing that we haven't mentioned today is the fact that as incomes rise, so do diets change, and not necessarily for the better. So, I mean, we've seen it in China, we've seen it in India, where when incomes start to move into the middle of the pyramid, we start to see more overweight and obesity. And I think that, in part, reflects the cost of food or is related to the cost of food, but is, is part of the equation as well. I don't have an answer to what, what do we do for the cost of food, but that is a point I'd like to make as well. Um, and then also, too, back to the, the multi-sectoral planning. One thing that I think is missing is that we often evaluate the outcomes and the, the plan, but we don't actually evaluate the process of how these partnerships are formed. And anyone who's worked in a partnership, whether it's two organizations or three organizations, you know it can be extremely difficult and complex. We all have competing priorities. Um, and, and I think there needs to be more research in that and how we navigate these partnerships, um, not only on the, the outcomes of the partnerships, but also the process, and how we can better work together um, it will take some, some people to be very honest <laughs> and, uh, and blunt because no one, no one likes to discuss the challenges when, when working together, but we all know that there are challenges. So I think that's something that, that would be beneficial for everyone. And just on the point about anemia and to pull on uh, Ozma's comments, in the, for the task force, we did focus on, uh, we proposed a mid-level initiative focused on adolescent girls and young women with the goal of minimizing the missed opportunities and kind of leveraging the full U.S. government arsenal to maximize touch points with adolescent girls. And the nutrition recommendation was around anemia. Um, and in the, the primer, I think Amy did a, a great job of, of condensing down a subject that is very complex. Uh, and originally we were aiming for 10 pages and had to go to 15 uh, to cover the, the breadth of the topic. So hence why there's no, we, we tried to be balanced across uh, the range of issues. Uh, so let's do another round. So we had one gentleman back here who had his hand up earlier and then we'll go to this. Oh, lady in the third row, and then to this gentleman. So let's start right there, please. Hi, uh, my name's Phil Thomas. I'm with George Mason University, work on food security issues. And it seems to me, you know, there's been progress, as you say, uh, in the nutrition area. But the concern I have is the lack of demonstration of adequate political will. How do you amass political will in the environment we're in today, given the enormity of the problem? We talked about HIV and how that went. And you know, my question here is, is this a government issue, both at the donor and the recipient level? 
Is it a private for-profit issue? Is it a non-profit issue? Should we be talking about private-public partnerships? But how do we get the mojo? Because it seems to me the enormity of the problem is so significant and the failure of institutions to respond to it. Look at the defense budget. What, six to eight hundred billion a year? And we're talking about a few trivial million dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Something's wrong with this picture. Thank you. All right, let's come uh, up here. Maybe my comment will help or not, I'm not sure. Uh, hi, my name is Ellen Piwaz and I work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And work very closely with Sean. And um, last year, Kofi Annan wrote in an op-ed or viewpoint piece that without data, you're flying blind, and if you can't see it, you can't solve it. USAID has been the primary funder and shaper of the vast majority of nutrition data in use in the world. You should be congratulated for that. We did a survey of several hundred stakeholders around the world to try to understand where they get their data from and how they use it and what data do they need and what the gaps are. And the number one source of data was the demographic and health surveys, which are, thank you to the US government, an incredibly valuable source of information. I will also, uh, confess that we have a partnership with you to help improve that nutrition data that we're very proud of, <laughs> thanks uh, to Anne, and we have people in the audience who work on that uh, quite a bit. Uh, the DHS program is in the process of reviewing the questionnaires to see how it can be improved, and there's been a robust exercise to look at how we can get more and better data on nutrition incorporated into the DHS, recognizing that there are um, many other competing interests, uh, but it's been a great process and we're hoping that that source of data will become more important, but frankly that's not the only source of data that's out there, that's a demographic and health survey, and I guess the point that I'd like to make is um, you all lead on data, you know the importance of data, you use evidence at every level, and you're very unique as a donor in the sense that you have all these technical resources that your missions can access to bring that data to, to, to the fore. Um, so my plea in this as you move forward is to really prioritize what role you can take across sectors in ensuring that the efforts that you are supporting to collect analyze and use the data, you know, permeates each. The best information, the standardized information, the right information is getting captured in the data collection platforms that the different sectors are using in order to understand their progress, their problems, and, and where they're heading. And I wanted to add, since we talked earlier today about how the focus of uh, your initiatives is on, you know, putting yourself out of business and translating capacity to the countries. And this is one area where it's not just about collecting the information, it's about developing the capacity in the countries to actually know what questions to ask, know how to analyze it, and know how to use it. And that's a pretty big undertaking, but it definitely is something that I think needs to be done, and needs to be done in a big way in your new world order. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, all right, and then the gentleman there. Well, that's tough to follow. <laughs> My name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a private sector and capital markets advisor. And Amy, uh, your comment about engaging the private sector or engaging different partners with all uh, competing or at least different objectives got me to thinking about something. 
So I want to make an observation and see if it has, and ask if it has validity. I'm guessing that there are about 65 people in this room, and I think I counted maybe 11 men. That means that 85% of this audience is women. 80% of the panel are women. Uh, I'm wondering, and, and, and so that's a, as a backdrop. When I go to meetings and listen to um, uh, subject matter experts uh, of publicly funded institutions talk to each other, I often hear the uh, rhetoric being, this is uh, captured in the essence of, this is really important. We've got to be able to tell them that we need the funding because it's so relevant. And I often ask the question, where's the value proposition to the people to whom you are speaking? And it makes me wonder if uh, this whole conversation about nutrition is not perceived as a woman's issue. Clearly it is. But uh, if it is, and, and if we're talking to each other about <coughs> such issues as the first thousand days, which is incredibly relevant and important, are we missing an important constituency out there that has a lot of firepower and may have the answer to what Phil was talking about in terms of finding the funding? And so I guess my question to you is, uh, have you articulated for yourselves the value proposition to men to understand how important this is? Thanks. Great. Okay. Let me, we'll go back to the panel and see if we've got time. We may have time for one more round, but um, I think let's go back to the panel with these three to start off with. I wanted to speak to Ellen's question about if you don't have data, you're flying blind. And I think that we all know that the DHS is really the gold standard uh, for, and, and I come out of the ag sector, and so we always want to be more like our health colleagues uh, about getting data and being able to just do what you all do in health, uh, what we all do in health. Um, and I think that we're, we're really pushing on, we have this initiative together for the Gates Foundation, on, uh, it's called 50 by 2030, to really get governments to have their own systems, their own capability, collect their own data on agriculture. And I think that, I mean, just it's, it's just a very different uh, sector. We spend, we as USAID spend millions and millions to get the data that we have that's been, I think, part of what has been so effective in gaining the political support for Feed the Future and for our interventions around nutrition, around agriculture, is that we have the data show that's been successful. But again, these have been our discrete donor-funded um, surveys to really measure and evaluate our own projects in our own areas. And so we really want to shift that to governments. For the same amount of money, we can build the capacity of the government to collect that data themselves. And so we're working in partnerships with, uh, with Gates, with World Bank, FAO, to really launch this initiative. So I think that we're, we're hoping we'll have more data that is universal and comparable across countries um, so we can better um, understand that data. I think that our work with our um, um, Feed the Future Policy Innovation Lab has really been to work with country governments to build the capacity to do the analysis uh, of that data to have it inform the country's policies. Uh, again, there's a long way to go, but we're moving in that direction and we agree with you wholeheartedly, although uh, the road is, is long to be able to get there. I think importantly, as we look to get 
uh, and, uh, better data on agriculture and agri-food systems, we need to make sure that we're really incorporating new technologies for data collection, geospatial, et cetera, et cetera, that I think can really make our data collection uh, much cheaper, much quicker, and they really help the facilitation of, of using that data. So I'm, it's one of the things I'm most excited and passionate about, and we're really investing in that area. Um, and I think that on sort of getting a broader constituency and committed to and engaged in nutrition, I think that um, ensuring that people beyond sort of nutrition projects, nutrition divisions, nutrition people, focusing on nutrition is part of building that broader constituency to understand, to have agriculturalists, people working in the broader agri-food system, people working on water, um, to understand why this is important for them and how this is, can also help fuel profits in the private sector, that this is a win-win for everybody. This is part of what we're trying to do in bringing all these different sectors together. I know you all will have a lot to say on that, but again, I think it's important to bring other players to the table, and that's what we're seeking to do. Uh, a couple of reflections, I guess, on the leadership issue of, you know, I, I think that the end game has to be strong political leadership from the government side. But how you get there can take many pathways. Sometimes it's serendipity and you get an enlightened leader who takes it on. Even that, I think, you need to avoid complacency because yeah. then it can change with the political wind. So I think it was an interesting case in Peru of where uh, it, you've seen resilient leadership at the political level, and part of that is because civil society made sure that during presidential elections, every candidate for president had to sign up to commit to nutrition outcomes. So infiltrate the entire system, not just one political party. Uh, I think there's been, I mean, two exciting movements I think of are in India with the creation of a national nutrition mission under the prime minister's office. The first time, you know, India is important. It's what at least a third of the world's burden of undernutrition, and it, this is the first time there's been that level of accountability. It's been a long road to get there of yeah. a lot of advocacy at many different levels. And because it's now institutionalized in that context as a national nutrition mission, there's some sense that it will maintain any changes of administration. Um, I was reflecting on perhaps where there's been less prioritization in Nigeria where both Sun Civil Society but some very enlightened philanthropist business leaders. So I think there are multiple ways. When I step back though of what I've seen when speaking with ministers of finance, heads of state, that probably resonates the most. It's actually not the warm, fuzzy sides of nutrition, of making lives better for moms and kids, but the idea of they're all aspiring to have emerging economies. It's like, oh, and damn, half my workforce is stunted and all the mental cognitive deficiencies that represents. This does not add up. And so, as, you know, I think we need to pay, play with our full arsenal of advocacy tools sometimes warm and fuzzy. Some of us are warm and fuzzy as men. Not all of us, I hope I am. Uh, but, but also like the hard economic, it's like, you know, this is just, you know, you, you aspire to an emerging economy and you're having half your workforce stunted, this does not work. So it's in the vested economic interest of the country to, uh, to, to invest in nutrition. Just to the, Phil, to your point about the political will, I think it's important to take stock that 
we have made progress on political will. It isn't where, uh, where the budgets are as large as the Department of Defense, but there it is really, uh, as Sean said, seeping into the mindset of finance ministers and, and things like that. It's the translation of these things into um, actual plans and, and resources uh, to go with the plans that where we really need to expend our energy now. It is interesting that the president of the former president of the World Bank really positioned nutrition within the the human capacity um, human, capital. human capital initiative um, that he launched with finance ministers really positioning nutrition and early childhood development as key to the future of uh, future economies of of um, developing countries and then um, the African Development Bank president talking about nutrition as gray matter infrastructure so I think we have you know, made progress in um, reaching fairly senior level people all over the world, presidents and prime ministers, but it really is living into how we do this and how we do it well. And I think, um, you know, seeing things in a, in a more integrated way will actually um, help leverage more resources for this, uh, for nutrition, hopefully. Um, to, in regards to the, the leadership question, I think in global health in general, leadership responds in a reactive way, not necessarily in a preventative way. And the key in global health is prevention, and that's also true with nutrition. And to the gender question, nutrition is a human problem, not a gender problem. Um, and I hope the primer really drills the, um, the point of how it affects every aspect of society. And that is regardless of gender or sex. And I, I'm, I'm actually really happy that we have a panel of mostly females. <laughs> no offense to the males. With that, I, I hate to uh, pivot on this point, but Sean, I had asked you maybe to give a little bit of a benediction on the end. I, I, the only man on the panel, it seems like a wrong pivot, but uh, <laughs> the Gates Foundation has been very supportive of this work and, and so wanted to give Sean the opportunity to offer us last thoughts. Um, you know, so you've given me a heavy responsibility, so uh, thank you. Uh, I will, uh, I think, so first of all, Thank you very much for organizing this. I, as I was reflecting, I actually was reflecting back on uh, a lecture I gave, uh, the, the foreman lecture I gave in DC in 2013, I believe, and on a topic very near and dear to my heart uh, around, well, it was actually about nutrition in general, but I'd started with vitamin A supplementation because I spent a huge amount of my life in vitamin A supplementation. And as I went back to, because, because I was giving that lecture, uh, I had delved more into the history of how all the science evolved around vitamin A supplementation. And, you know, basically it was the leadership of U.S. government and U.S. research institutions. And moving from the basic research to the, the operations research and the implementation. And it is, so I 
this is not to be completely jingoistic, but it's really amazing the amount of leadership, both the financial, political, and academic research leadership on global nutrition that does come from the U.S. So I do find that U.S. leadership on this topic is so fundamental. Um, and I think the, as, as I was saying earlier at the opening of, I think on a very personal level, this resonates on many, many fronts of, for those of us, like many of us in the room, who've, who've worked in nutrition for many, many decades, we feel that we're finally at that tipping point of getting that political leadership, that political will. And Asma, as you said, now to make sure that's actually translated into results for the people we care about. And we know that political will is also very effervescent and very fragile. And now is the time as we build up into Nutrition for Growth 2020 to make sure we're, we're really driving, seizing this opportunity, keeping the pressure on uh, to really demonstrate the results that, it can, that we, we can make a difference. And I think we're much smarter about what works. We're much smarter about how to scale up. We don't know all the, know all the solutions. But really the onus is on all of us to make sure that this moment of time is translating to impact and that creates a virtuous cycle of continuing to invest. And again, a different way of investing, uh, donors investing much more to how do we build for the long term in the countries we partner with, uh, country governments, governments of high burden countries stepping up and saying we're assuming responsibility for this, businesses to actually being much more focused on safe, affordable, nutritious food, that they are an essential part of the food system. Uh, and each sector really playing its part, understanding that each sector can contribute to nutrition and each sector will benefit from better nutrition. So uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to, to, to discuss this topic that's very near and dear to uh, many of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Osman, Amy. Thank you to all of you. Have a good rest of the day.